Hello and welcome. This is the Climate Voices Podcast and I'm your host, Omesa Mukaya. This is a show that is bringing together different climate champions that have been working in different areas, uh, ranging from research, from academia, uh, to people who have been working with uh, frontline communities in addressing the climate crisis to share positive stories such that everyone gets to understand what is happening in terms of addressing the climate crisis. So today I'm joined on the show by an amazing guest that has a, a breadth of experience and depth of knowledge in the areas of you know, addressing climate uh, through the lens of you know, adaptation and resilience building. Professor Kaa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so various conversations have been through the angle of mitigation and uh, adaptation and some of the topics that have uh, you know emerged and people are talking about is loss and damage. Uh, but before we dive you know deeply into the conversation, could you briefly introduce yourself and uh, talk about some of the initiatives that you've done before? I mean, you've been in research, in in academia, in policy implementation, and all that. Uh, so can you talk about that? Sure. So uh, right now I'm a professor and I'm the director of international development, community and environment here at Clark University. But um, I've, I've had a career that sort of defies easy categorization. Um, I am an academic principally, I guess, but mm -hmm. I've spent a substantial portion of my career in the implementation and policy space. So uh, I spent a couple of years at USAID standing up the climate change program in one of the bureaus there. Um, I've worked very closely with the USAID implementers in the years since that. Uh, I worked for the World Bank uh, on a project on building climate resilience in Zambia. I'm currently the climate change advisor on the scientific and technical advisory panel to the Global Environment Facility. And the Global Environment Facility is the funding mechanism for the multilateral environmental agreements. So uh, my career is really a lot about tacking back and forth between basic research and impact and change in the world. And that's where I find the most interesting stuff to happen and the most interesting work to be done. It's also the most challenging work. Theory is great when you don't have to actually have any empirics because you can just theorize all day. Uh, and just doing the same thing over and over is easy work, but it may not actually lead to better outcomes. So when you crash those two things together, uh, usually you generate a lot of tension, but then you also tend to generate a lot of really cool outcomes. So maybe that's a decent starting intro. Of course it is. I mean, what you can see is that you are all over the place. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes. your experience like touches across um, everything that we can think about. So I'm, I'm more interested in, like in the past, I've had, uh, you know, a couple of guests uh, talk about uh, youth involvement in climate action. We have uh, mm. touched on topics around um, social justice issues and um, marine ecosystems and how all those have, have impacted by climate change and what people are doing around that. So in the topic of adaptation, so... Um, over a decade since we started having these conversations around climate change, uh, the conversation has majorly been around mitigation mm. and uh, trying to cut down the you know emissions that are leading to climate change. But we haven't seen a lot that's happening around adaptation. But it, it's not the case recently, of course. Right. Conversation is like taking the center space and everyone is talking about it now. Right. What has been the case in the past that is not given attention, but it is now? I mean, it's a really good question. The, you know, so climate change as a policy challenge emerges really in the late 1980s. I mean, in the scientific community, people have been thinking about this since the, actually the late 1800s. We knew that greenhouse gases were a challenge. But when that policy question first arose, 
Um, there was a real push on mitigation, I think, for two big reasons. Mm -hmm. One of them is that the mitigation side is a fairly straightforward science question, right, uh, in the sense that you can measure the outcome you want, less greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. That is a measurable outcome. But the other side was a real concern in the 1990s that the, a discussion around adaptation and real effort on adaptation would create what some people saw as a moral hazard problem, right? Where people would say, well, we don't need to mitigate because we'll adapt our way out of this particular challenge. And I think that was allowed to happen mostly because people saw climate impacts from climate change as something that was going to happen in the future. In fact, you can see language from the late 1990s yeah. in academic literature, in the mm -hmm. popular media, everything saying something's going to happen in a couple of decades. This is going to be bad. We need to be ready to adapt. And I think what changed really was in the early and mid-2000s, people started realizing this wasn't two decades, three decades away. This was happening right now. And on top of that, a huge number of people were being impacted right now. And finally, as you sort of made a reference to, there were real justice, equity, politics questions here because these impacts are not being felt equally around the world, right? The world's most vulnerable and marginal populations were absorbing a huge amount of this impact, but they didn't have the resources to just adapt themselves. So I think you've seen a big transition over the last 20, 25 years, but it happened relatively late compared to mitigation. And even today, I think mitigation still gets more attention than adaptation, even though in the short to medium term, the bigger determinant of people's well-being is going to be adaptation. Rightly mentioned that the conversation began around the mid-2000s. I remember, I think it was in the COP17 in mm. Durban. Uh, in 2011, that's when global negotiations, like the UN processes, they began having like, major serious conversation around um, adaptation. But at the moment, we are seeing uh, we also have something called the global goal and adaptation because everyone has been talking about the mitigation, you know, uh, limiting global emissions to below um, 1.5 or like well below 2 degrees. But now we have the global goal on adaptation, you know, trying to uh, raise the bar, having adaptation secondary to mitigation, right. but like right. looking at them equally. So is the global arena through the UN conversations also like having these conversations, having successfully made it through the discussions? So what impact is it having at the global politics around climate change? I mean, this is a good question. I, I think the global goal on adaptation is a mess, if you want me to be really honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the global goal for adaptation, it's incredibly vague. It doesn't actually mean it. It's not measurable. Yeah. It's more or less adequate action to protect people's well-being. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it can mean anything. You can what is adequate, what is action, what is well-being? None of those things are defined, mm -hmm. so it's all kind of just floating around. In fact, I just wrote an article with a colleague who was also on the IPCC, also heavily involved in sort of this academia to implementation space talking about what we actually think the goals of adaptation are, mm -hmm. trying to create something much more measurable. Mm -hmm. Even though, look, measurable is also reductionist, right? I mean, reducing well-being to some variable or a couple of variables is always going to exclude some things. Yeah. But if nothing's measurable, nothing gets managed. And it feels to me like on the mitigation side, we have very clear goals, right? If it's going to be 1.5, there's an actual gigaton reduction target we have to hit. I mean, it's physics. It's atmospheric physics in the end. We just have to get that much of a reduction in emissions. Adaptation goals, I mean... What does that mean? Again, you can also talk about dollar amounts needed, mm -hmm. right? And we're coming up massively short, somewhere in the 300 to $500 million a year, a billion dollars a year, sorry, short of what we need to be putting in. But even that doesn't necessarily tell you what you should be doing in a particular place. So I do think that there's like serious attention to this. I do think people are worried about it. But the policy conversation is not in a place where anything interesting or productive is going to happen mm -hmm. right now, in my opinion. Uh, I just don't think the global goal makes any sense. Adaptation is a local phenomenon.
Yeah, I mean, some of the things that have been pushed around this is, you know, gender responsiveness mm-hmm. and, you know, um, capacity building and also like in the enhancing indigenous knowledge. But like you rightly mentioned, these are not some things that you can have clear and measurable, you know, um, goals around them. So is that what is impeding the process of adaptation, for instance? Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, that's why I wrote that article with my colleague was we wanted to say, look, what are things that adaptation does, mm-hmm. like, and, and at least make them more concrete? And all we really did was take up the major characteristics of r- risk and vulnerability and say it's, it's exposure, sensitivity, and adaptive capacity. But all those things can be measured at least. Because when you have goals, you can build theories of change. Mm-hmm. Then you can say, by empowering women, this will happen leading to a reduction in sensitivity to a climate impact or increased adaptive capacity. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a clearly stated goal, you can't build a theory of change. And then the risk is you talk about gender empowerment. You talk about uh, indigenous knowledge. You talk about these things that actually are important, but you just tokenize them. Mm -hmm. They just become things that you say, but there's no actual clear reason for why you've brought this stuff in. And therefore, it doesn't actually change anything, right? It it just becomes an extra data point laying around. It's a bit like gender disaggregated data. Why is the data gender disaggregated? What do you get from that? I think that that is a, you know, a significant challenge for us to be thinking through. Why are we doing what we're doing to get what outcome? Right now, I don't feel like that's a very strong conversation anywhere, by the way. I, I don't think that there's a bilateral donor who has this right, let alone the global conversation. Talking of bilateral donors, you, you mentioned that in your introduction that you have also had an opportunity of working with, for example, the USID. I know they are involved in a lot of projects, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, in trying to enhance the resilience of the people, especially the you know the grassroots communities towards the impacts of climate change. So. And one of the things that we critically look at in trying to uh, ensure that adaptation is achieved as well as mitigation is is the issue of funding. At the recently concluded COP in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, uh, you know, countries committed to, for example, like offering a a number of million, couple of million dollars, which I don't uh, think is uh, is sufficient enough to address those impacts. And given that there is actually not sufficient, uh, you know, um, mechanisms on how to hold accountable which, whichever parties are going to be involved in that. So is funding an issue uh, in ensuring that climate adaptation is achieved? Yes. I mean, money obviously will determine what we can do and who can do it. And I do, th- I mean, one of the challenges we have, again, this is an unlike mitigation problem, right? Mm. The principal mitigation drivers come from countries that are capable of mitigating because they're actually the ones that are the wealthiest countries, right? Those are the big drivers. The largest adaptation needs are in the countries that have the least resources to adapt. So it's landing in a very uneven sort of way. Mm -hmm. And if we actually think that we bear any responsibility for what's happening around the world, and when I say we, I'm talking about places that created this problem in the first place, so countries like the United States, most of Western Europe, et cetera, then I think we do owe something to other people in the world. At the same time, you can also take a completely self-interested view on this and decide that you still need to do something. Mm -hmm. Because the fact is we all live on one kind of relatively insignificant rock circling a relatively insignificant star in kind of a backwater galaxy, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're all on one small place. The global food system is a global food system. If something crashes in the global food system, as Ukraine in the most recent war showed us, we can see food price shocks everywhere, yeah. including here. So I think that we actually do need to be paying a lot of attention to this. Whether we think of that as a moral obligation, whether we think of that as self-interest, I, I can't come up with an argument for not worrying about this in other parts of the world. So that means, yeah, coming up with the funding. Mm-hmm. But 
that's not, there are some people who treat that as money that gets our money, mm-hmm. and I'm going to frame this again as an American view, right? Yeah. Our money that gets dumped some other place. No, it's American money in American interest. Mm-hmm. If you think that American interest is to live on a safe, healthy, prosperous planet. Right? I don't understand the difference between the national interest and the global interest on this particular challenge. So I, I do think it's well within our interest to lead on this. And I think you are starting to see movement in the United States uh, on this, not as much as, say, in Scandinavia. But I think we are moving forward on this now. And I do, by the way, one other thing I'll, I'll just add to this is this also relates to the issue, though, of measurables and targets. You know, what are we giving $100 billion to? What are we trying to achieve with $100 billion? Because then we'd know exactly what are we investing that $100 billion in. What's the outcome we expect to see? At least then there's accountability, and I think that would make the funding question a bit easier as well. Talking of the $100 billion and how we are going to hold everyone accountable to that, during the recently concluded COP, most of the countries from the sub-Saharan Africa and the global south in general were facing the lethal impacts of climate change. Mm. We were pushing this for this kind of fund to help them you know, towards uh, addressing the impacts of climate change. And, and this raises a question of loss and damage and who takes responsibility for this. You mentioned, you know, from the case of America, you're like, whose interests are being covered? We have seen resistance from some of the countries in the global north in supporting uh, or chipping in towards, you know, meeting uh, the commitment towards this $100 billion, and it's actually derailing the efforts in addressing climate change. And you have seen a push and pull in, you know, economic mm-hmm. uh, wars between, like, the U.S. And, and China, for example, and how it's impacting uh, addressing climate change. And we saw during the COP, you know, leaders standing up to this, like Maya Motley, um, the Prime Minister of Barbados standing, you know, strongly and saying we should address all these issues. So how are we going to address this and make sure it doesn't impact those countries which actually, like, did least in contributing to climate change? From my perspective, the answer is maybe not as uplifting and inspirational as you might want. Um, politics are incremental, at least at the global level. They're mm-hmm. always incremental. And when you reframe politics that way and you stop expecting global processes to create giant miracles, because mm-hmm. that's how every one of these cops gets framed, right? If we don't have a huge breakthrough, we're all going to die or mm-hmm. something like that. But we're never going to get a huge breakthrough. You, what are you going to get 192 countries to agree on? I mean, you can't even agree whether the sun's up on any given day, let alone whether we should act on climate change, right? So that, that's not going to work out. But for example, the fact that the United States actually allowed the words loss and damage to show up anywhere and actually put some money in, a pathetically small amount of money, right? But put money into it, that's a massive incremental change. We have aggressively tried to keep that language out of any agreements, let alone pay for it. The fact that we started to put money into this conversation around loss and damage means we just took a big step forward. Now, all future negotiations start there. They start from, hey, you agree that this is a thing, Mm. and you actually put a little money in, so the next time, you don't get to say it's not a thing anymore. Now it's here. And that really, on the global scale, is how those processes move. But that also means that the global scale isn't going to drive this conversation, right? It's going to be country level, and it's going to be sub-country level. In the United States, it'll be at the level of states and cities, I would say. California decides to change its policies on the efficiency of automobiles, and they can change the entire auto industry of the United States. Because Ford is not going to make cars just for California. That doesn't make any sense. But California may be the single largest consumer of cars they have. Therefore, if they change it for California, they just change it for the whole United States. When you see a big city like New York decide to take climate action, or Boston decide to take climate action, Chicago, um, when you see these kinds of shifts, 
that's a big chunk of our economy being shaped by new regulatory policy type environments, which then can radiate out across a country. So I think that there might be just a mistake to look at those global negotiations and assume that will be the big driver of change. The big driver of change will come from all kinds of places, and it'll be country, region, city specific. I've actually been so skeptical about looking at the global perspective in terms of trying to achieve the change that we want to see. And rightly mentioning that the U.S. has actually taken major steps despite the noises that we hear criticism and opposition towards climate action. I, I recently saw the signed by President Biden uh, Inflation Reduction Act. There's mm-hmm. a lot of money put into climate action. Yep. And you talked about California. Actually, I, I know about the efforts to decarbonize the transport sector. For yep. example, there's a lot of investment uh, in electric mobility and electric cars and stuff. We have seen other cities taking that up. And also, actually, it's being scaled up to some other you know, countries, even outside of the U.S., I really support the issue of, you know, addressing the climate at a national or even sub-national level. And that's actually one of the things that give us hope. So do you see the role of, you know, for example, cities in coming up with their climate adaptation plans, not even at the national level, but having, for example, city adaptation plans, will it play a key role yeah, absolutely, for a host of reasons, in- including the fact that cities are just a smaller political scale to work at and therefore probably easier to get to agreements, mm-hmm. but also just the fact that more than half of the world's population lives in cities now, no matter where you are, right? Sub-Saharan and, Africa tipped over that several years show ago. show as early as 2030, population is going to go high. Oh, yeah. Moving it's, to cities. It, it's going to be absolutely massive. So cities will be one of the central places to take this on, which raises an important issue which is that the development agencies that tend to implement adaptation funds and, to some extent, mitigation funds, um, generally are not heavily focused on cities right now. There's, they are lagging yeah. the need in that development and now climate change space and still kind of treating the global south as mostly agrarian, mm-hmm. which is sort of funny because I'm a person who works mostly in agrarian settings. But uh, I hopefully will be a dinosaur by the time my career is over um, because I think that the, the bulk of people in the global south are going to live in cities. Therefore, the adaptation needs will be in cities. Therefore, the mitigation focus will need to be in cities. And, and as we pivot toward that, I, I think you can see an acceleration of solutions. But that is because those solutions will emerge for particular places in, politi- in particular political um, settings that, that make that possible. But for example getting uh, the leadership of Lagos, Nigeria, and the leadership of New York City to, you know, agree on what the right action to take is, it doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, they're both coastal cities and they're both huge, but after that, they're colossally divergent in terms of experience, economy, all that other stuff. Lagos needs its solutions and, you know, New York City needs its solutions. But that kind of diversity, by the way, there's scientific support for that kind of diversity. If you go back to the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, it was the first Mm -hmm. global assessment I was ever part of. They modeled a bunch of different sort of future worlds. This is some very early scenario work that's now become quite common in these global assessments. And they ran a various a various set of these, and one of them was sort of, you know, business as usual. One of them was one they call Techno Garden, where, like, the technocrats take over and we implement every good technical solution we know. And one of them was called Adapting Mosaic, and that was basically governance and solutions emerging at the watershed level, which is pretty small. Turns out Adapting Mosaic worked best in the models, even though it didn't mean we were going to have massively coordinated 
coordinated action. In fact, we could have very divergent action, watershed to watershed, you still got much better outcomes. And so there's an argument at the political level for why you do that, but there's actually an argument at sort of the biological science level for why you should need to do that. That gives me a lot of hope. You, you talk about cities, this is something that pick its um, development is happening and what we consider agrarian, like we said in the global south, we are seeing development and shifting towards, you know, uh, population shifting towards cities. So that's not something that we can ignore, is that development is happening mm -hmm. as, uh, side by side with climate change. And what we are trying to see is how development uh, can happen, you know, putting the impacts of climate change in mind. And uh, one thing I, I, I know is that you are involved in the IPCC processes uh, and one of the working groups, uh, working group two, I actually I, like, looked it up and I, I saw you, contri you contributed in the recently, you know, um, assessment reports, the six assessment reports, and you focus majorly into like climate resilient development. What does that mean for the globe? A great question because that has become a central concept in the climate change community and really working group two is the one that pushed that forward in the most recent assessment and that was the chapter that I was a lead author on so I'll admit yeah. I have a conflict of interest here but I still think it's really important. Um, so climate resilient development is actually what seems like a really obvious concept but I'll explain why it's actually really hard. Climate resilient development simply suggests that what we need to do is align adaptation actions, mitigation actions, and development action toward a goal of sort of a just, sustainable development moving forward. And you can define development in that any number of ways. There's no part of the world mm -hmm. where everyone is perfectly well off, safe, healthy all the time, right? So everywhere in the world needs to be thinking about development. Some places have different challenges than others. Some people have deep, deeper challenges than others. But everyone can think about aligning these things. Now, you might hear that and say, well, of course you need to align those things, except in practice, no one aligns those things. Mitigation funding and adaptation funding tend to live in two different budget buckets and mm -hmm. often cannot be mixed. So you can't implement a mitigation project and an adaptation project in the same place with the same leadership. You have to have two parallel projects, and that's usually a disaster. And then mixing that in with development goals has not commonly been done. When I was at USAID, I worked with some of my colleagues and we tried to build a framework that we called um, climate resilient development. Mm. Um, and it's there. It didn't really ever get taken up. Um, but this has become a, a really serious push because I think we're recognizing, especially with the Working Group 2 report, that our adaptation actions have not, as best we can tell, been as effective as we thought. And in part, that is because we're not paying attention to the ways in which um, adaptation actions, mitigation actions, and development actions can actually crash into each other. And instead of creating synergies, like create drags on each other, right? Where you, you work on a development effort because you want to improve employment. But by Im improving employment means um, massively expanding the extractive sector and mining a heck of a lot more coal and burning it. Well, you just destroyed your mitigation goals, right? Yeah. So like, okay, there's more money. So people might actually be able to adapt better. They might actually have, be better off financially. Mm -hmm. But 30 years from now, as all that stuff ends up in the atmosphere, they end up in a much worse situation because of the eventual impacts of all of this. That's not climate resilient development. You have to think about how do you grow someone's economy, if that's the goal you have, mm -hmm. in a way that actually can still contribute to a mitigation goal, but bring about development and adaptation goals. And then in the center of all that is the, I, I said it in passing, but is the question of justice and equity here. Yeah. We can't continue with patterns of massively uneven development. It, it can't play out. It's not sustainable. It's not healthy for anyone. We actually have quite a lot to do in that area. And so the question of justice uh, does come up repeatedly 
in, in our chapter in the IPCC report. And I think it's going to be a growing focus uh, of the climate conversation going forward. Again, not just for ethical or philosophical reasons, but for practical reasons, yeah. right? If, if we are not engaged in a question around equity and justice, how do we bring people into this conversation? How do we get the outcomes that we need around the world? We know that uneven development leads to bad environmental outcomes. We have to get away from that pattern of uneven development. You won't do that without justice and equity questions being answered. Talk, you're talking about um, justice and equity and how those are tied into development and so it raises a question around um, social, uh, it's called just transition. We're talk, mm-hmm. trying to talk about issues of transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy and how that impacts the global south, for example, which direly needs to you know, develop. For instance, my country, Kenya, needs to develop. We have a, a Vision 2030, which is our development blueprint that aims to transform the country into a mid-income uh, status by upper mid-income status by 2030. But here we are again talking about looking at the impacts of climate change through not using fossil fuels, mm. investing in renewable energy, for instance, you know, investing in, for example, if we're talking about food systems, trying to look at how everything is tied into the ecosystem, like trying to right. be like conscious about the ecology. So how, how is it uh, possible for some countries like my country to pull themselves out of poverty while also like trying to conserve the environment at the same time? I mean, I think that's the central question we're going to be facing for the next 50 to 100 years. I mean, it, theoretically, that's been a central question for us to some extent the mm-hmm. last 80, if you, if you think that development started in the post-World War II era. And I guess as a formal field, it did. I think you could argue that a lot of its thinking goes all the way back into colonialism. But still, we can say that there's a formal field here. I, I don't, I mean, I, if I had an answer, right, I'd, I'd be running large development agencies, I suppose. But um, then again, the people running those don't seem to have the answer either. I, I think that what one of the big things we have to think about is what it means to talk about development on a finite planet. It is under our current energy regimes and material regimes, it is simply impossible for the entire world to live as we do here in the United States. We simply lack the natural resources on this planet, and we don't have any other planets to mine at the moment. So we're not going to find a way to do that. So what does that mean? Well, it means a whole host of things, ranging from, you know, ideally changing up some energy regimes, so mm-hmm. renewable energies, but also, you know, what if fusion actually came online? That, that might actually allow us to change up some of how we do stuff, providing cheap, near-limitless energy for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, I think it's going to fundamentally mean that we're going to have to think differently about how we live on the planet and what our relationship is to our lives on this planet and the material things around us. Uh, How much stuff do we need? Uh, What stuff do we really need, right? And so that, that, and that applies to absolutely everything from the consumption of uh, consumer goods to the kinds of food we eat, right? I mean, do we really, I'm, the American food system is kind of terrifying. If Mm. if you ever leave it for any length of time and then get to look at it from outside, Mm We're killing ourselves with our food. It's, it's really pretty terrifying. Even Europe is crushing us in terms of food quality. But, you know, you go to places like, I mean, like you mentioned, I've done a lot of work in the global south, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm living out in a village, and I'm eating stuff that just came off the farm. No one's got pesticides. No, one use, no one's using hormones. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff. I know where my food came from. And you know what? Generally speaking, I lose weight when I'm in West Africa. And it's not because I'm sick. It's because mm-hmm. the food's that much better, right? I'm not eating garbage all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel healthier. And I, I think that, you know, and those folks, 
where I'm working, they're not consuming $20 a day worth of food. They're growing it themselves, but it's, you know, a couple of dollars a day worth of food. They are at a sustainable level of food consumption that isn't holding them back, by the way, that, that isn't limiting their quality of life. So I think we just need to be thinking through a lot of the systems that we're involved in, energy system, our food system, but also in the end, our social systems and the things that we value, because that underpins all those other systems. Yeah, you know, talking of food systems is a, is a topic that I'm so I'm so passionate about. And, and looking back at how uh, we used to grow food back in the village in mm. Kenya and how food is grown at the moment, it brings uh, the question of who is controlling the food systems. You have seen uh, a case of, you know, multinational corporations, uh, you know, the big corporations like Monsanto, Syngenta, DuPont, and all those like controlling the seed industry, the agrochemical industry, and they're now moving into sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, in Kenya, in industrial culture is taking the center stage, and we, it, yeah, you know, it all boils down to the issue of policy. These corporations influence policy-making processes, and if you look at who is controlling the agriculture value chain in most of these countries, is that the corporations have completely taken over. In the name of trying to, you know, ad- ad- adapt to impacts of climate change and coming up with all those. Um, you know, mechanisms of introducing agrochemicals, you know, growing food using agrochemicals. But initially, these people could feed their own people using, uh, you know, food that is grown in a healthy way, in an ecological way. Now, even in Kenya recently, they lifted a ban that has been there for like over a decade long on, on GMOs, for instance. It's it's now a thing in Kenya. It's second country after South Africa to allow, you know, culti- open cultivation and, and consumption of GMOs. Are corporations hindering the effort of the people in addressing climate change, especially in the food system, mm, mm. Uh, and you know, leading to other issues? You, you raise a concern about health. Are these some of the challenges that we are likely to see in the name of trying to address climate change? I think the food system issue you're raising really points to the complexity of the challenge, right? Because mm. in the end, what I see happening in food systems conversations, especially in climate, is a struggle around what knowledge is valid and whose knowledge actually counts. And that is fascinating and really frustrating from a science perspective because you're seeing a lot of studies of things like, for example, agroecological farming methods. Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer, by the way, around agroecological farming methods is that in some places in the world, they're at least as efficient as large-scale industrial and they're better for the environment. In other places, by the way, they're not but that has everything to do with the local environment, right? It's not one answer. But all of this is often shoved off to one side as sort of quackery, something crazy, you know, crazy environmentalist, something like that, Um, because we've come to privilege a certain kind of thinking around production and science's role in that production, right? So we should be able to overcome soil fertility issues through better science, which we have translated into inputs that we shove into soil, not into better use of science to understand how to rotate crops Mm -hmm. on that land and maybe not use as much input. So there's really been a framing of the conversations, a very Western framing, in many ways a very American framing, although the Europeans do a lot of this as well, a very specific framing of the right way to produce enough food for the planet. And anyone who steps outside of that lane has a really hard time fighting their way back into the conversation. And so 
that gets then mobilized, right, by large corporations because they're going to invest in certain areas where they're going to make a lot of money. They're not going to make a lot of money on agroecology, but they can make a lot of money on inputs. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're going to be supportive of that discourse. Yeah. And so now you have the economy lining up with a specific scientific discourse, and maybe the scientific discourse is lining up with the economy. I mean, these all kind of play together. And then politics comes into it because, of course, there's money in play, so there's interests and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, you end up with a discourse that says, this is the right way to farm under climate change. This is the solution, and other solutions won't work. All of that said, evidence slowly but steadily works its way in. And as climate change becomes an increasingly significant challenge, as we have to look much more carefully at our food system, because it will not grow fast enough, to just allow us to keep doing what we're doing and feed the whole planet, we are going to have to start thinking about alternative ways of doing this, right? And the, just the fact that we're losing somewhere between 25 and 40% of all cultivated food in the world to either post-harvest loss or waste because yeah. we're not consuming it, that's a whole conversation that we need to have, which, by the way, doesn't work great for some food companies because the more food you throw away, the more new food you got to buy, right? Yeah. And so there's just a very complicated conversation here that does, it has many entry points, but it doesn't have one solution or one leverage point that I think actually works. I, I see cracks in that edifice, but I don't see it falling down anytime soon. Can it be looked at as a form of uh, maladaptation? Because trying to come up with a solution using the inputs, I know they are you know, fossil fuel intensive. It, it, on the other hand, it's contributing to the very crisis that we are, so, we are trying to solve and leading to other health impacts to other ecosystem impacts, for example, all these end up into the ecosystem, into the yeah. water channels, and it's all going into the people's, uh, you know, body systems. So is it a form of maladaptation? Yeah. And, and are there other maladaptation that are coming up as a, you know, in the name of trying to address the climate crisis? Oh, I think it's a, I, I think that a lot of industrial farming is massively maladaptive, if you actually look at it, right? Um, dumping inputs, increasing amounts of input into increasingly infertile soil generally results in more of that input ending up in the environment. An awful lot of that can show up in the form of emissions. So you're going to drive larger greenhouse gas emissions. That's maladaptive. Um, you're, at, you're doing ecosystem damage. We see a lot of that even here in the United States, mm -hmm. right, with runoff from fields affecting waterways, all that sort of thing. That's maladaptive. But it's also locking us into forms of agriculture that are increasingly rigid at a time when we're going to need flexibility and diversity to find our way forward. And that, too, is maladaptive. Um, but it's also all characteristic of the stuff I've seen in my work on resilience around systems. When systems get put under stress, they get more rigid. They don't get more diverse. They don't get more uh, innovative. They start doubling down on what they think is reliable and safe because... It's, a for, it's around the forms of knowledge, but it's also around whose authority is preserved, right? Because you're not just challenging how you work in the world. You're challenging who gets to be authoritative in the world, who gets to have power in the world. And so, again, that's why this is really hard to address. It, it's not just about science. Mm -hmm. It's about the setup of society in the end. So it's like challenging the systems in the name of trying to, you know, have the paradigm shift from whatever is, the, you know, the business as usual to what we want to see. Which is one of the hardest things to always do, right, is to get out of business as usual. Because mm -hmm. business as usual is what we're all used to. It's what we're familiar with. It's a comfort the, zone. It, with, there's a comfort zone. Well, okay, but let's remember there's a comfort for some of us in the world. Mm. Business as usual is also causing a lot of people to not live in comfort. So, again, this is where global politics becomes a challenge. This mm -hmm. is where equity becomes an issue, right? Business as usual works great for some of us.
but not for all of us. And if we're going to get to a place where a lot more of us are doing well under how we operate things like the global food system, um, we're going to have to make some very significant changes. But that requires understanding that other people live differently than we do and have different experiences than we do. And that's a hard thing, I think. We're, we, everywhere in the world, people know their own community. They know their own place. They don't necessarily understand uh, the diversity of other places and experiences that are out there. Maybe that is something that we need to be thinking more about in terms of solutions is just increasing the actual exposure of people to other people's lives and experiences just to build empathy, if nothing else. But certainly, if you can get from empathy to understanding someone's experience, then maybe you can understand again why we have a responsibility to work with people and to bring about these kinds of transformations. Talking of um, the power dynamics and all the politics that are playing in the global center stage, especially you know uh, the conversations you're having around climate change. After the COP27, the COP28 is already decided it's going to be happening at the UAE. And the UAE has appointed co-presidency to someone who is the leader of, uh, you know, a major oil corporation. And is, is this a conflict of interest? <laughs> Isn't it? It's, it's a case of, you know, um, leaving a jackal to take care of your ship, like to watch over your ship. It's like appointing the very people who are representative of the contributors of the problem that you're trying to see from the oil industries and having them lead the climate conversation. Isn't this... Um, ironically, are we going to see any progress in terms of global conversation um, around climate change? You know, I really, I see that point, but let me float a counterpoint, one that I admit makes me a little uncomfortable, but I still think needs to be voiced, mm -hmm. which is how do we think we're going to make progress if those people aren't at the table? How do we think this is going to work? Do we think we can wall off the fossil fuel industry from this conversation? The fossil fuel industry underpins the entire global economy. If they're not in the conversation, we're done. That conversation isn't even happening, right? Because uh, what are we going to do to move that around? They have enormous political power. They have incredible economic power. If they're not in the conversation, if we cannot somehow make them productive members of that conversation, then we're just talking to ourselves. And so that would be my first point. I, I don't necessarily think you have to put them in charge of the cop, okay? That's that, not uh, great. Yeah, that's my argument. We can help yeah. them, but having them lead... The processes, that's what my concern is. And yeah, but that, that's really a question of, and this is the challenge that you, know, you and I and any number of other people face, which is mm. we don't know what that internal conversation is, right? What was traded to get that person to be in charge? What did they have to agree to? Mm -hmm. What things are they going to let happen at the cop that maybe they would have worked hard to block, but now by doing it? I don't know what negotiations were in place there. Mm -hmm. The other thing is to ask sort of, what the goals of those energy companies actually are. And I don't pretend to have insight here. I, I think that this is something, though, that we need to spend some time talking to people about. Because I remember during, I think it was the Millennium Assessment, I want to say someone, was it Millennium Assessment or was it Geo4? I can't remember. One of the assessments. Um, someone from BP mm -hmm. was there. This is long before BP rebranded itself as Beyond Petroleum or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is he was very clear that BP, I wasn't surprised to see them rebrand away from Beyond Petroleum because he said, we're an energy company. They didn't care if it was fossil fuel energy, solar energy, nuclear power. They didn't care. They just wanted to be in charge of the energy. Mm -hmm. So they were already looking at expanding into solar. They were part of this assessment not to stop the assessment, but to try to figure out where everything was headed so they could get in front of it so that they wouldn't become dinosaurs in the field and irrelevant at some point. So if these energy companies 
want to join in that spirit to understand where this is all going. And if by getting them in that way, they become productive. In other words, they're shifting toward renewables and helping accelerate a transition toward renewables, then that can be constructive. Now, there's a lot of assumptions I have to make to get there, right? We have to assume that that's the role that they're willing to play. We have to assume that someone's negotiating in good faith. And maybe none of that is true. And if none of that's true, then this is disastrous. I agree with that. But I just think there are some considerations we need to work through to understand that decision-making. And rarely do I see that kind of stuff discussed. I mean, the fact politics is complicated. Politics is compromise. So what's been compromised here and to what end? Mm-hmm. I, we don't have insight into that. And we won't know, right, until after the cop's over, when maybe we see something happen or maybe we don't. But this is a really big challenge for even reading what these political moves mean. Say we have to wait and see because some of the things that we are that were you know formulated at the COP, for instance, the loss and damage fund, there are some frameworks which have to be followed up at the yeah. COP28. So it's all entirely dependent on the proceedings of that process that is yep. being led by again <laughs> conflict of interest, I call it. But okay, mm-hmm. we, we'll just wait and see. Um, but it, but uh, it could be. I, I don't want to debate that point. I, mm-hmm. I want to say to you, yeah. That really could be a huge conflict of interest. Um, That said, nearly all global agreements involve someone with a conflict of interest, right? Because global agreements, rarely does everybody agree on on the issue, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody's arguing, and they're usually... Look, the Saudis show up at every negotiation around the summary for policymakers to the IPCC. And the Saudi delegation shows up incredibly well-prepared, ready to challenge every sentence of the summary for policymakers if they have to. Why are they doing that? They're not doing it for scientific integrity. They're doing it because they're trying to water down the messages because their whole economy rests on fossil fuels. Everybody knows this. I'm not saying anything secret. Everyone who's involved in this knows that's what's happening here. Do the Saudis have a conflict of interest? Yeah, they do. But that's what negotiations work out, Mm. is the conflict of interest situations. The COP27 was um, majorly advertised as as an implementation COP. Mm. And um, like trying to shift the the conversation from planning to implementation. Do you? Did you find it as, was it a success? No. Do you think it was a success? (laughs) No. No. Um, But you know what? I I thought that was a little bit silly because uh, cops are not where anything involving actual implementation happens. That's a policy arena, right? And Mm. policy arenas should be be about policy. And they they should work to very clear policy statements. And then implementation proceeds from policy. But that's a different arena. Um, I think that the work of implementation is being moved forward by organizations like the JAF, with, the, for example, the Least Developed Countries Fund, which I advise, or the Special Climate Change Fund, and the Green Climate Fund, which has now become sort of a partner in some ways to the JAF funds and, and the Adaptation Fund. And, and what we're doing now, like the technical advisors, like myself, um, we're working hard on helping them to think about how to design better projects that draws on what we know to be good practice, what we've learned from the academic literature, Um, And distilling all of that into practice guidance for practitioners. That's where, like, implementation moves forward. We need the cop to create the environment where there's money to do the work. 
But the cops shouldn't be telling us about how to do implementation. That, I mean, you don't want uh, ministers negotiating about how to, to best incorporate women into an agricultural project. That doesn't, that doesn't tend to work out very well. Yeah, it doesn't. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually get, gets me to think about who actually does the implementation. It's the people at the grassroots. Yes. But um, we have to have these policies, you know, providing uh, the necessary um, conditions for them to do yes. this. For example, even to, uh, to access the funding that is, uh, you know, for example, given through the bilateral donors and yes. or the World Bank, for instance, gives a lot of funding, but there are mechanisms that you have to go through. And and this is where knowledge and, and your technical capacity, for instance, comes in in advising how, for example, countries or organizations can get to the, their, you know, get the necessary mechanisms for mm-hmm. them to, to access this funding. So I, what I see is, um, and again, uh, you know, coming back to your role in academia, uh, are we seeing a case of where people are working in silos? Is academia really playing a key role uh, in addressing the climate crisis? Given you are someone who's been working in academia, in research, in policy, how do we get all this to have a conversation together and address uh, all these issues all at once, like? I know in unison because you're facing the same issue here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a question I think I spend a lot of time asking myself mm-hmm. in my just my day-to-day work because, I mean, I do live in these different spaces. And I think part of the reason I live in these different spaces is because I don't think that academia is the um, a solid foundation upon which to have a lot of impact. I think it is a place where you can do a lot of good and important work. Academia does generate that, right? Basic mm-hmm. research that is really critical. Um for understanding the challenge and potentially understanding solutions. But the translation of that into usable information, actionable information or action, full stop, is really hard and academia is not good at that on the whole. Um, Academia, most of my academic colleagues, not necessarily here at Clark, but actually around the world, uh, generally their version of implementation is publish an article. Mm-hmm. And you hope that someone reads the article. And as a former policy advisor in a federal agency, I can tell you that no one reads the articles. So if that's your version of implementation and translation, you're not having any kind of an impact. I think, though, that there is a huge, huge space for higher ed here. Um, I, I, one of the things that's made me most frustrated in my career is the work that I've gotten to do in a number of countries Uh, with partner organizations, with partners, with enormous capacity and talent. Um, I've been funded to train up local teams to gather the data, for Mm -hmm. example. And those teams do awesome work. It's a lot of fun to train people. They often haven't done ethnographic work, so it's really cool to kind of work with folks. But we cannot, we have had the hardest time getting anyone to pay for us to build the capacity of those same people to do the analysis. Mm -hmm. And that is what we absolutely need to start seeing happen. It is not okay, in my opinion, that I need to continually be brought in to places like Ghana or Mali or Senegal or the places I've been working the last couple of years to do that analysis because no one there has been built up in terms of capacity. And that means a couple of things. One, that's something that higher ed's really good at is capacity building. That's what we do. We educate, right? We build capacity. Mm. So either in using us to build those kinds of capacity building uh, opportunities in different places around what we know how to do best, not to tell people what to think, but to help them in terms of how to think and what tools to use. 
The other thing that we need to do, the United States government used to do this, and it needs to get back to doing this, which is pay for the higher education of people from other countries who will then return to their countries and bring that expertise back with them and then become themselves engines of capacity building within their countries. This is measurable. If you talk to people who are involved in this kind of work at places like USAID, they will outright tell you that in the countries they've had the most success in working on these issues and partnering with the government, the partner on the other side had at least one or two people who had been educated through U.S. government funds to the Ph.D. level, fully understood the issue, understood how to engage and to bring um, the U.S. government in in a productive kind of way, but also to make sure local partners were involved. When we do this kind of work, we create the partners at the other end that we need and we empower people to come up with their own solutions. And if we don't do that work, it will forever be us, people like me, showing up and having to learn the whole context, right? And that takes forever. And then to partner with people anyway to figure out what's going on. It ought to be led by, in your case, Kenyans. It ought to be led by Ghanaians. And the fact that we haven't gotten there Um, I find incredibly frustrating. And I really, I've said this over and over, and now I'm starting to sweat it as I get older, that like, if I'm 70 years old and I'm still absolutely necessary Mm. to get a project done, I'm going to feel a little bit like a failure in terms of my career. I would love to be superfluous to needs. I would love for people to invite me in because they find me sort of amusing, but not because they need me anymore. (laughs) Um, So that that would be one of my goals. But we need to change the conversation a little bit around the work we're doing, why we're doing it, and what would be efficacious. And instead of me showing up and saying, hey, um, deliver this climate information in a different way, maybe show up and say, hey, here's how to think about assessing people's needs. And here's how you can do that analysis so that you will continually be able to assess needs. And when I'm gone, you'll still be able to assess needs. That's the kind of change that I think I'd love to see. And I think that higher ed here in the U.S., whether we stay put here and people come to us or we go and partner with organizations in other parts of the world, um, that's a role that we definitely could play and build on. What I'm reading from that is, uh, you know, solutions coming up from people at the grassroots. Yes. It's bottom-up approach. Yeah, because I've had an opportunity of actually like working on a DFID-funded project mm-hmm. like from the UK, uh, UK government. And one thing I learned from that is solutions come from the communities. Yes. They work yes. in collaboration. You don't just go straight into the communities and tell them we're doing this and this. They work through, you know, uh, partnerships with, uh, you know, CBOs, local community-based organizations who know like what the people are facing, what the people need. And, you know, you you, de- you do a needs assessment and people say we need this and this. Uh, you might go in there trying to, uh, you know, give people books, but what they actually need is, you know, a dispensary. It's what they need is food or what they right. need is something else. So all these solutions coming up from the people. So uh, as we, um, you know, come to the end, because you can have these conversations, you know. <laughs> we do <this> forever. Uh, <laughs> or forever, but um, for in the interest of time, as we come to the close, um, you have worked in. You mentioned that you have worked in, you know, uh, in West Africa. You worked in Zambia. Is, yes. Yeah. You have you have had oh, an opportunity of working like, across the, you know, uh, the planet. In I, I can say, in, like in different countries, in different contexts. So, are there some lessons that you pick from this that we can maybe scale up? Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said a minute ago is is something that really I've taken away from all that work. Right. That. If you're now, granted, again, I work in agrarian settings, but I think this is probably true everywhere. Um, people have plans. They have ideas of what they would do. I tell folks all the time, I, I, 
I've been doing this for 20, what, 25, 26 years now. I don't know how many farmers I've talked to in different places. I've yet to encounter a farmer who didn't have a plan. Where if, if you talk to a farmer and say, if I gave you $50 US equivalent right now, what would you do? None of them sit there and stare at you. Yep. They immediately know what they would do. It's usually I would go buy this many goats and it would be this many males, this many females. And mm-hmm. I would have more goats and I would sell that goat and then I would and, go buy this yeah, thing. And, yeah. and it, yeah, that's the thing. It's not one step, right? It's like they've worked it out over several years and with contingencies. So people have already figured out what they would do. Why aren't we talking to them? Because they've thought this through for their context. They've thought about the contingencies in their context that I can't possibly understand because I just showed up. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that wherever you go, you're not going to get the same plan. Right. A Malian farmer, you know, up in one of the drier livelihood zones is going to have different plans even than a Malian farmer in a rainy zone, let alone a Ghanaian farmer who's like on the coast and has plenty of water. And that's not the situation. And you can't even graze cattle. So you would never buy a cow in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. They're all going to have completely different solutions. So if there's one really big thing that I would say it is right, figure out how to get down to the grassroots. But that, again, to me, is all about empowering people in the country. So empowering universities in those countries to do their own basic research within their own populations. Empowering NGOs, empowering even government agencies in those countries to do that work. There's going to be deeper understanding coming from that context. There's going to be greater legitimacy if you're coming from that context than someone who just parachutes in from a Western country to try to just learn something like that. So I think that that's probably the single biggest takeaway. Trust people on the ground. They have ideas. It doesn't mean that they know everything. There's things that we can bring to the table. There's things that we can bring in partnership. My work on weather and climate information has really shown me that farmers know how to farm in their particular area, but they don't always realize what data could be brought to them. Mm -hmm. They don't realize what sorts of forecasts could exist. So when you talk to them, you can get into a back and forth conversation where you don't have to dismiss a farmer. You can say, what if I could tell you and they can come back to you and say, well, that doesn't help me. What if I could tell you this? Wait, you can tell me that? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that. Well, then I would change the way I'm farming maize because if I knew how long the season was, I would shift the variety I'm growing. Now we have a partnership. Now we have a conversation going that's really constructive. So that's where I think the most exciting things that have happened in my career have happened is in those conversations where something emerges that couldn't have happened um, if it was just the farmer working on their field or me just showing up. It's in that conversation. Yeah. So that's what I would seek. Yeah, I mean... What I'm seeing there is like the role of indigenous knowledge. Because yes. All these people, for example, in the in the area of early warning systems, they have a way of telling whether you know these are shifting weather patterns. The right. way they used to see rain in this you know month, and it's now shifting a couple of days earlier, and they they know how they can tell and how to prepare early, and that can be very fundamental, you know, in informing, um, for example, policy formulation processes. Yeah. Yes. So. Um, any takeaway or no any like you know um takeaway messages for anyone who's listening to this so the, the i mean the podcast just uh, just started a couple of months ago it's not like six months old but we already have like audience in uh, in 20 countries across the, the world so there are people out there listening who are in like different contexts there are people who are impacted by you know sea level rise right. food insecurity we have talked about there are people who have been pushed away from their homes because of Right. impacts of climate change and who are listening to this what would you like to tell anyone who's listening to this yeah so i've been working uh formally on questions of climate change for about 20 years now uh yeah. informally i didn't realize i was thinking about adaptation back in the 90s but it turns out i was yes. um and i'm still an optimist 
And I think that that's incredibly important. I also don't know how you work on this subject if you're not an optimist, right? I mean, it's just, if you think you're doomed, why would you work on this? You'd go do something else, I guess. But I am an optimist because I've been around long enough to see the kinds of changes that can happen in the world. I've seen Ghana just absolutely explode in terms of the quality of human life, the size of its economy, that kind of stuff over the last 20, 25 years. And if you told me in the late 90s it would look like it does today, I probably wouldn't have believed you. And so I guess seeing that kind of a transformation and recognizing we can change how we live. And I do see these conversations slowly but steadily shifting. And, and I also do see increasing capacity in other parts of the world, not just you know in the United States or Europe going to other parts of the world. I see increasing capacity to take up the lessons and ideas from people where they are, in the watershed, if we want to go back to that level, where they are. And all of that gives me a great deal of hope. Uh, I really do think we're going to be able to address this. I do think it's not going to go as smoothly as people want. I do think it's going to be really hard in the next 50 to 100 years. It's going to be very bumpy for everybody. And I think it's sort of an imperative, both from our self-interest and morally, um, to make sure that we're taking care of those most vulnerable and marginal people as this bumpy period goes through. But we can totally do that. I absolutely believe in that. So that's what I get up every morning thinking anyway. Yeah, it's a bumpy road. I mean, uh, we are treading on a quagmire, but what Professor Kai is saying is that we have hope. All that matters is the hope that we have to instill to people, we have to pass to everyone. We are not going to address all this if there's no hope. Right. It's not all lost. There's hope and we can we can actually see change. And the planet has hope too. I hope so. It's not <laughs> going to be. It's all, it's all been about, you know, uh, stories of catastrophes and everything we are told is about, you know, stories around uh, tipping points and how it's going to... Uh, lead us to um, catastrophes and sea level rise and, and, and temperatures rising, but with everyone's effort, there's hope. I, I agree with you completely. I, I think I'm tired of the catastrophe language. I mean, I think it's good for clicks and it's terrible for absolutely everything else. And there's a generation coming, right? And I have children, right? My oldest is 16 years old, and they've, they've spent their whole lives hearing that they're screwed. And I am fed up with watching that impact. That's not true. It's just not true if you look at the data. But that's the story, right, that they get told. But that's also a whole generation of people coming up now for whom climate change has always existed and has always been a major threat and something to deal with. And we're 20 years away from that generation starting to take over major positions of authority and power. The conversation will change over time. I tell people, yeah, you know, we have 50 to 100 years, but really it's 20 years for my generation not to screw everything up. Because by, if we can just hold on for 20 years, that next generation will come in with a different set of politics. And I think that you will see a lot of changes happen. I want to be careful. I'm not, by the way, punting to my children and saying, you fix it, because that's like the worst thing a senior generation can do. We have a lot of responsibility right now, um, my generation. But that's another thing that gives me a lot of hope. I see this in youth everywhere in the world, but I see it in my own house. And that's something that I think gives me hope. To the future generations, there's hope. Professor Cup concludes by saying <laughs> there's hope. Uh, to my children, well, I'm not sure when I see them, there's hope <laughs> wherever <laughs> that happens. So thank you so much uh, on, uh, for being on the show and for the amazing contributions. I mean, it's, it's an insightful conversation. Uh, and, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you for the conversation. Those are great questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you. So uh, I've been your host, um, Omesa Mukaya. This is the Climate Voices. And as I always say, we are addressing the climate crisis one conversation at a time. 
Thank you so much until next time.